Hello and welcome to the Education Policy Podcast for England. In this episode, we update you with the latest about COVID. We also touch on political impartiality in schools and consider pensions indexation. We also introduce a new feature, our Good News Feed. We look at pensions in your working life and we bust those pension myths. Yes, so hello and welcome to February's edition of the Education Policy Podcast for England. I can't believe quite that I'm having to say uh, this again, but once more, we are, as Martin mentioned in the introduction there, going to have to start with COVID because there is, once again, late on yesterday, another update for COVID, uh, this time about restrictions being removed and lifted. So, Martin, what can you tell us? What does this mean for the education section? So hot off the press, as you said last night, we received uh, an update following Prime Minister Boris Johnson's announcement that from the 24th of February, all the legal requirements to self-isolate will be removed. In addition, the government will no longer ask fully vaccinated close contacts and those under the age of 18 to test daily for seven days and routine contact tracing will end. So basically, anyone with any of the main uh, COVID symptoms should still test and they're still advised to wait at home uh, for the result and, you know, avoid contact with other people for at least five days. But if you have no symptoms, then there is no requirement for you to self-isolate. If you live in the house with someone who has got uh, COVID, there's no requirement for you to also self-isolate. The government is also removing its advice for staff and students to test twice weekly. So you no longer are legally mandated to test twice weekly if you work in a school, college or early years setting. Let's take this in two parts. One part's employers, one part's employees. What are we recommending that employers should do to protect staff, children, etc. Community and the voice section put out a statement which explains a little bit about what we expect both employers and employees to consider over the coming weeks. Because any roadmap to living with COVID must balance the appropriate protections for workers and their right to a safe working environment. So employers have a duty of care to their employees to provide a safe working environment. And at this moment in the management of the pandemic, education and early year settings need clear guidance from the government, which at the moment we have not yet seen. The safety of staff, children and their families must be paramount because we're aware that the number of cases could soon rise again unless we remain vigilant. So, As the government guidance does say, it is important for those who test positive to stay at home. We would argue that all those who need to stay at home are able to. And that means the provision of adequate sick pay so that no one is forced to choose between their health and their finances. We're also concerned about the removal of access to free lateral flow tests from April the 1st. Because we know that having free lateral flow tests, that's crucial to managing COVID infections. And we've urged the government to consider keeping lateral flow tests free in education and earlier settings. Without free and regular testing, asymptomatic individuals might take COVID into the workplace. We believe that these changes are likely to impact 
the most exposed to COVID, particularly those who are younger and in lower paid or insecure work or where social distancing and work from home is impossible, such as those working in nurseries and early year settings, those working in care homes and those working with vulnerable children, for example. Lateral flow tests, we believe, should remain free for the foreseeable future and we would recommend the government raise sick pay for good also. We urge all education and early years workplaces and staff to be cautious and to maintain sensible and proportionate measures. And those who want to continue to wear appropriate face coverings should be supported to do so. But where is testing going to continue to be mandatory? Is there anywhere that's going to still be in place? Yes. So the government have been quite clear that these changes don't mean the end of testing altogether. The government are still advising that regular testing takes place in special educational needs and disability settings, in alternative provision and in SEND units in mainstream schools and colleges. So if you work in any of those alternative or special educational needs provisions, then you are still required to test twice weekly. And of course, any setting might be advised by local public health teams to test again in order to manage an outbreak. And although twice weekly testing is no longer recommended in the vast majority of maintained schools, staff in education and childcare settings and students and pupils can still access test kits by ordering them through the school if they so wish. So let's boil this right down to the the very basics then. As far as we're concerned, and actually I heard a government minister saying this uh, on the radio the other day, employers have a duty of care to protect their staff. That's still the bottom line. That hasn't changed. And we are still in the the midst of uh, COVID. We would be asking all employers, whether they're nurseries, schools, universities, academies, anything else that, you know, where where our members may work, we'd be urging all of those to take appropriate measures to protect the people who are within their establishments. And that might include enabling them to self-isolate should they wish. Yeah, further than that, we're not asking employers, we are requiring employers to have a duty of care to keep everyone safe because that exists in employment law. Yeah. And yes, we would be supporting any employer, supporting our members, should they still need to take additional precautions, such as testing, such as wearing face coverings, such as self-isolating. We would very much be in support of a cautious approach here. One of the ways that employers can fulfil this duty of care is to make sure that they have got health and safety reps within their staff body. Um, these could be employees Um, specifically employed for the purposes of health and safety, or they could be health and safety reps from the unions. Um, Those health and safety reps can then work together with the employer to ensure that regular risk assessments are undertaken. Because as we've said, for the last two years, risk assessments are the best way to examine the issues that are unique to your workplace and to take steps to address them. They are the best way of identifying where the problems are, and looking at what can be done to either resolve those problems or mitigate against them in the short term. They are the best way of keeping everybody safe. On top of that, schools, colleges, nurseries are still required to ventilate their rooms. You know, again, the law states that everyone has the right to um, adequate ventilation in their workplace, whether that being you work in a small cubicle style office or whether you work 
in a sports hall, you are still entitled to an adequate exchange of fresh air and good ventilation. And of course, if you've got the windows open at the moment because you're trying to improve ventilation, the employer is still required to heat those premises to an adequate minimum temperature. The health and safety executive recommends that the minimum safe working temperature is 16 degrees centigrade. 16 degrees, by the way, is cold. That's the, that's the lowest setting on the car's climate control. In the summer, if I want it dead cold, it only goes down to 16. That's 16 the, degrees. That's the legal is, minimum. It's not the, 16 not, not, degrees is pretty chilly. It's not the recommended temperature, no. but it is the legal minimum. And if you want to know more about uh, ventilation and CO2 levels and all of that, then you can check out January's podcast for more information. Just just a a moment more on this. Would we be asking employers to continue to pay staff in full whilst they are isolating um, and not counting the isolation absence towards their absence calculation according to their policy, be it Bradford Factor or whatever it might be? And the reason I ask that is because it seems to me, Martin, that when an employer, if an, when an employer encourages someone to stay home who has COVID, it prevents it obviously spreading within their workplace. Some people may be perfectly fit and healthy enough to come to work. You know, the government have said you don't need to isolate if you're fit and healthy. That's fine. But other people in your workplace may become ill and then you lose staff, cause you to need to bring in agency workers, which costs money. So really, it's in the best interest of the employer to make sure that the provision is there to allow people to stay away if they do have COVID and it helps keep settings open for the longer term. Very much so. We urge all education and early years workplaces and staff to be cautious and to maintain sensible and proportionate measures. What we're saying here is that employers have a duty of care to their workplace, to their staff and to all the uh, children, pupils that might be using that workplace. And therefore, a sensible and proportionate approach is the best way to get from where we are now to where everybody wants to be in the future. I think we'll leave COVID there. If we do have any members listening who require some further advice or support, then as always, you can contact us, call the duty officer on 01332 372 337. On to the next thing in the here and now, uh, a, a short update on political impartiality. Um, seemed a relatively unnecessary statement from the Education Secretary uh, earlier this week. Um, what do we know about this this statement from uh, the Education Secretary? Yes, so the uh, Education Secretary has spoken out this week about teachers maintaining political impartiality. It's always been the case within the teacher standards that teachers should not uh, use or abuse their position to unduly influence the children and the young people that they're working with. So therefore, we were quite surprised by the strength of this statement, feeling that it perhaps was not necessary, given the statement which already exists within the teacher standards. However, what it does go on to say is that everyone has their views on political subjects and issues, and teachers are no different. But it is important that teachers explain things to their students in a way that is impartial. Teaching about political issues and the differing views on these is an essential part of the curriculum and helping pupils to form their own opinions and prepare them for later life is very important. The law states that teachers must not promote partisan political views and should offer a balanced overview of opposing views when political issues are taught. 
Whilst all that is true, this should not dissuade people working in education from covering political issues, particularly if they're in the news and especially if they are teaching a subject such as politics, where obviously these things are going to be covered. It is important that these things are taught in a balanced way as one would expect with the rest of the curriculum. Yeah, I mean, as you said, I think it was a particularly unnecessary uh, statement to put out. I think, you know, I, I taught A-level media studies. A lot of that is, is to do with politics. And often I would further a debate amongst students, which is sometimes the best way of learning. You know, there were some of my best lessons, I think, was when a debate started amongst students. And to further those debates by asking questions. And some of those questions may have appeared that I had a certain point of view. I was just encouraging debate. And I think that's a worry that like after this statement, teachers may just think it's just not worth it. I'll just keep away. And that not discussing those things in school with peers in a safe environment um, could could lead to you know all sorts of issues, whether it's further extremism or whether it's uh, apathy. So I, I agree with you. I think there are um, there, there are issues around this. If you have any thoughts on this, we'd really love you to get in touch with us. Uh, so that email address is educationpolicy at community-tu.org. We do get people actually in touch on this subject every now and again, even without it being in the news. So if you do want to get in touch, let us know your thoughts. We'll stick them in next month's episode. And just once more, that's education policy at community-tu.org. OK, uh, moving on. Pensions indexation, Martin. Yeah, pensions can sound daunting. They use lots of acronyms and sometimes the language is, is quite impenetrable. We've noticed, along with the other unions, that there have been an issue with teachers' pensions uh, for a small minority of pensions users. If you are still working your way through the pay scales, then you may have some way to go before you're able to claim your pension. But it's a good idea to keep an eye on your pension. And you can do that by logging onto the Teachers Pension Scheme website at www.teacherspensions.co.uk and uh, check out the information that they have on you, especially check to make sure that your service is correct, because it's easy to rectify any anomalies now whilst you're still working. Yeah, can I just double down on that? Is I had a problem with my teacher's pension uh, at one point where my first and most significant length of service at my first school was entirely missing off it. And even a couple of years after I'd left, it was difficult to get that rectified for a couple of years later. Log on now, check it all up to date, because the sooner you can get that sorted, the better, because unfortunately, sometimes mistakes happen on that. And that applies to everyone with any pension um, whether they be in teachers' pensions, university superannuation scheme, local government pension scheme, or a, a nest pension as well, do log into those pension schemes and check, check, check. As I was saying, we noticed that there was an issue for a small minority of teachers within the teachers' pension scheme. Those who had not received a pay uplift because of the pay freeze and were also at the top of their respective pay scale, so therefore their pay had not changed at all either. Those within 10 years of retirement age could potentially suffer losses because there was no indexation, that is that there was no increase in their pension linked to an increase in salary. As I said, it doesn't affect all teachers, it doesn't apply if your entire pension is within the career average scheme, but we do know that several members have got pensions in both the final salary scheme and the career average scheme, and so it could apply to those. 
So as soon as we became aware of this, Voice Community, together with the other teacher unions, wrote to all the schools, local authorities, multi-academy trusts, uh, to make them aware of the issue and to advise them about what they could do about this. We have advised governors, trust boards and school leaders to use the powers that they have to remedy this because they can make a recruitment and retention payment at any level and this can trigger indexation within the salary rate. This can be as little as one pound. There's really no reason not, no, absolutely. not, not to sort this out, is there? If it's one pound, a payment you know. of one pound per teacher would be sufficient to trigger indexation. However, the earlier this payment can be made, the greater the pension benefit. So uh, if this applies to you, if this has not happened, then please do get in touch, but also speak with your head teacher, speak with your uh, school finance officer or your school business manager and find out if this is something that can be applied to you. Well, this this circles us round, Martin, to our first good news story. So what is our good news linked to pensions? So our good news linked to pensions, linked to pensions indexation, is that we are thrilled to be able to share with you that a number of multi-academy trusts have already actioned this. Uh, several multi-academy trusts that um, operate nationally, as well as ones which are local to our head office in Derby and Nottinghamshire and Leicestershire, have already processed a small payment that will allow indexation to occur for the small number of people that it affects. But we're even more thrilled because they haven't just restricted this slight uplift to only those teachers who are affected, but they have applied this uplift uh, to all teachers and in some instances to all staff as well. So support staff have also received just a very small uplift to make sure that this was not divisive in any way. And so many um, multi-academy trusts have applied this across the board to all their members of staff, which is a wonderful way also of showing how much these employers value their staff, particularly after the last couple of years. Excellent. Okay, that moves us on nicely to your working life because we are going to carry on on the subject of pensions. So, Martin, up first, saving for a pension. Thanks. We've already mentioned uh, that pensions can sound daunting. But it is important that everybody has a pension. Current estimates based on research by PLSA and Loughborough University suggest that in order to have a moderately comfortable lifestyle in retirement, you need on average an income of £30,600 per couple every year. And that's, you know, uh, that's sufficient to cover your bills, food, maybe go on holiday, eating out, that sort of thing. Now, since 2018, auto enrolment uh, has applied to every single employer in the UK. And so it is likely that you will have had the opportunity to join a pension scheme. So you've mentioned auto-enrolment there, but what does that actually mean? Like I said, since 2018, every employer in the UK has had to automatically enrol people into a workplace pension. This is the law. They are required to do so. And all staff can request to join the pension scheme if they want to. Employers have to check that you're eligible. And to be eligible, you are, have to be aged between 22 and state pension age. You must earn at least £10,000 a year and you must normally work in the UK. If you fulfil all of that 
eligibility criteria, employers must put you in the scheme within one month of you requesting it. But of course, you can leave that pension scheme whenever you want and your employer must take you out of the scheme also within one month of getting the request. If you join the pension scheme and ask to leave within one month of joining, this is the opt-out period, then you can have your contributions refunded. But if you ask to leave after the opt-out window, so after a month or two, then the contributions will remain in your pension and they'll keep growing um, with investment until the time that you access them when you retire. Do you have to be in a pension scheme? So no, you don't have to be in a pension scheme. You can choose to opt out. You can choose to opt out of the workplace pension scheme or you can choose to opt out of any of the uh, government backed pension schemes that exist in education. So if you don't want to be in the teachers pension scheme or the local government pension scheme or the university's superannuation scheme, you can choose to opt out. But the employer has to check every three years that you still want to opt out. Otherwise, they will automatically enroll you back in to one of those schemes. You've mentioned the teachers pension scheme a few times there. Uh, now, my understanding is that that is for um, teachers and lecturers in state funded and independent schools. Right so far? Correct so far. Um, now, I'm also very aware that uh, due to changes in employee contributions over the last few years, uh, it's been it's been an issue the entire time I've worked for, for Voice Community. Um, independent schools have been considering or actively moving away from a teacher's pension schemes. And there has been quite high profile strike action support of schools remaining in the TPS. It, it, I presume that issue is not going away. Um, what should members do if they find themselves in a situation where th their, their employer is considering leaving the TPS? That issue is not going away at the moment. If members are working in independent schools and they find that their employer is considering moving away from the TPS, the employer must engage with the employees and with their unions and they must consult on what it is that they are planning to do. The employer must have a workplace pension scheme. So even if they do ultimately decide to move away from the teacher's pension scheme, they must offer you an alternative. If your employer is in the process of consulting at the moment, please do get in touch with your regional officer um, so that we can support you and we can recommend to your employer that you remain in the teacher's pension scheme for as long as possible. Teacher's pensions, along with the other government-backed pensions, are some of the best pensions that are available in the UK to anybody. And so we would recommend that wherever possible, you do remain in those pension schemes. OK, moving on to another one I know a little bit about as well, the Local Government Pension Scheme or the LGPS. Now, again, stop me if I get this wrong. That's part of the pay and reward package for employees working in local government or any other employers participating in that scheme. OK, so academy staff, administrative staff can join the LGPS. They can, yes. And um, okay. for those staff that do join each year, 149th of pensionable pay is put into the pension account and at the end of the year the total amount is adjusted to take into account the cost of living and things like that. Over time those 149ths will keep building up into quite a tidy sum but of course for some people if they join the LGPS late 
they can choose to boost their pension by paying additional contributions, which they will get tax relief on. If people are going through difficult times, they could choose the 50-50 section of the scheme, which is where they pay half their normal contributions. But of course, that does mean that you'll only get half of your pension when you come to retirement. Answered my question before I had asked it, um, but I bet you can't do that again. (laughs) My next question is, uh, I guess, you know, they're the two that I'm most familiar with, the teacher pension scheme and the local government pension scheme. Are there any others of note within our sector that people we may want to talk about now? Certainly there are. So um, you've already heard me mention the university's superannuation scheme. Now, this is one of the largest private pension schemes in the country. So it's not government backed like TPS and the LGPSR, um, but it is very, very well established. It was established in 1974, and it's the principal pension scheme for universities in the UK. Um, And whilst it is the pension scheme, they also provide other uh, financial support and insurances, such as life cover, for example. Members contribute one seventy-fifth of salary each month, but again, they can contribute more up to the contributions limit, and their employer will also add to this. And unlike TPS and LGPS, you can actually choose to move pension savings from elsewhere into the university's superannuation scheme too, so that all your pension money can be together in one place. And I think there's one more I've heard you mention, Nest. The Nest Corporation is the uh, trust that runs the Nest scheme, and they are a public body. They're accountable to Parliament, for example, uh, through the Department for Work and Pensions. It's the scheme which is commonly offered to those working in nurseries, early years and childcare settings. Like other workplace pension schemes, it is uh, one which will pay out when you retire and um, you can choose to start accessing your nest pension from the age of 55. However, it's important to remember that, as with any pension scheme, the more money that is in it, the greater your pension will be. And so the earlier you access the pot, the lower its value will be. And this is because you've had less time to make contributions and the pension scheme has had less time to grow your money. In addition to that, of course, there is the state pension, which is paid for from um, your national insurance contributions. Before we perhaps move on just to the very last bit, I think um, it's probably worth saying here that we do have, and she'd hate me saying this, we do have an excellent pensions technical officer here in our voice section. So if members out there do have questions about their pension, do get in touch with us. So the number to call us for that is once again 01332 372337. So my last question to you, Martin, on the Your Working Life section is about the impact of student loans. I've heard this mentioned a couple of times recently, the impact of student loans on pensions. What's that all about? Yeah, unfortunately, student loan repayments are beginning um, earlier and earlier. Repayments are taken directly from your gross salary, along with national insurance and income tax. There is nothing you can do to stop paying any of those three once you have hit the trigger point. And so as a result, many newly qualified staff already have up to 30% of their salary deducted before they even see it through income tax, national insurance and student loan repayments. So it is a big ask to expect them to start contributing to a workplace pension scheme, especially when teachers pension scheme, for example, the lowest contribution rates are seven and a half percent. 
And in local government and nest pension schemes, we're looking at between five and five and a half percent. And these are, bear in mind, are the lowest contribution rates. Research advises that you save at least 10% from your 20s onwards. So it is difficult to find that amount of money, particularly that amount of spare change, to be able to save almost 40% of your salary. And so a number of people are choosing to opt out of pension schemes so that they can focus on repaying their student loan. This is such a big issue that we are going to be bringing a motion about this to our community conference in May, and hopefully we will have a resolution and an action that we can take to government as a result of that. That brings us on really nicely to our next section. It's almost like this is planned, isn't it, this podcast? Brings us on really nicely to our next section, which I must pause for, for usual uh, fanfare, because we're now going to move on to Mythbusters. Boom! I want to set the scene a little bit for this Mythbusters, Martin, if I may. You've just been talking about the, the, uh, the, the young people starting out in their career. You know, those people who, let's say they're under 25. We know it's difficult at the moment for them to afford to buy a house, for example. So actually, as much money as they can put aside towards a deposit for a house could be really useful. So rather than losing the up to 30%, 40% you were just talking about through student loan and through pension contribution and everything else, the one thing they can actually opt out of is their pension contributions, right? They can't opt out of paying back their student loan. So the myth with that context in mind is you only need a pension when you're older. Right. This is possibly the shortest myth busting ever. You only need a pension when you're older. True, because you can only access your pension when you are older or should something happen to you and you are able to access ill health retirement. But in order for there to be a pension for you to access, you need to start planning for that now. If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. As, exactly as, as they say so it, it's it's now that you mu- you need to be paying into your pension now if you pay a little bit in each month as you you know go throughout your career hopefully by the time you come to the end you've got plenty there to to retire on so whilst it may not seem when you're 22 23 24 years old and you're really trying to get that deposit for your house it may not seem the most important thing in the world but keep paying into your pension part I'm conscious that I don't want us to sound like we're an advert for pensions, but (laughs) you're absolutely right. Fail to plan and you plan to fail. It is difficult for people who are on low incomes to sacrifice any of that towards their pension. But sacrificing a small amount now will build up over time. Your contributions don't have to be fixed. They don't have to remain the same all the time. Depending on what pension scheme you are in, you can make over contributions. And as we've discussed with the local government pension scheme, you can go into the 50-50 section. Any contributions that you make into your pension scheme are going to help to make sure that there is something ready for when you retire. Currently, at the time of recording, the state pension age, the age at which you can access your state pension is 68. And you can get a forecast of what you might receive from the government as a state pension using the Check Your State Pension online service. State pension is based on the national insurance record. So again, as we mentioned right at the beginning, it's important to check that your employment record is correct so that any errors can be rectified really early on. 
as we've mentioned, with the workplace pension, with the teacher's pension, the local government university superannuation scheme, the nest pension, or indeed any other workplace pension scheme, it's a good idea to pay regularly and to up your contributions as soon as you are able to. 10, 15% of your annual salary should be tucked away into your pension. And remember that every contribution that you make, your employer will also be making a contribution to. The minimum amount that your employer has to pay is 3%. So every contribution that you make, your employer will also be making a contribution. And by the time that you retire, that will have added up to a tidy sum. Finally, pension contributions are eligible for tax relief. And so you could get a top up of around £25 for every £100 that you save in your pension. So for every £100 that it goes into your pension, the government will pay an extra 25% on top of that. That's why paying into a pension is a better idea than just paying it into a savings account. And so uh, I think it's pretty much come to the end of that section on, on pensions. So a reminder on some of our training courses that are available. In last month's podcast, we spoke with Ben Richards about opportunities to get involved with Voice Community by being a workplace rep. We'd love for you to get involved. So if you are interested, then please do get in touch. We have a modular approach to the workplace rep training in Voice Community in May of this year. Similarly, we are still recruiting members for our policy forums. Martin, anything to say on that? Yeah, we've got e-policy groups on early years, supply workers, curriculum, teacher pay and conditions, higher education. So if you are interested in helping to shape voice community policy, then please email us at educationpolicy at community-tu.org to get involved. I can't stress this enough. We are a member-led organisation. We need to know what's going on in schools, nurseries, universities, academies, etc. So please do get in touch with us. And finally, don't forget to follow us on social media. On Facebook, you can find us at facebook.com slash community union. You can also visit community on Twitter and Instagram or visit our website for news, shared content and resources. If you're a member and you need advice or casework support, please contact your regional officer or call the duty officer on 01332 372 337. And don't forget to like and subscribe and tell everybody to join us on the next Education Policy Podcast. <laughs>